0: down to London's beautiful Hampstead Heath at the end of a very hot day and I'm looking to talk to some people about the night sky. I mean you forget what stars look like when you don't leave London for a while yeah. and it's always a big shock when you leave the city and there's loads of stars this is what you're supposed to look, see when you look up but now I'm kind of used to it you kind of forget what you kind of forget it's part of life looking up and looking at stars yeah. wow. in London a bit it makes me sad but I also understand how the, the, real, the realism of it it does make me sad but yeah. I understand this is the choice of living in the city with 10 million people. There's a lot of lights. I really like the night sky and I never see it because I live in London. Yeah. Yeah. So like when I'm on holiday, it's an incredible experience to actually see the stars. Yeah. And yeah, I definitely regret that, that this is the case in London. Yeah, I don't think about the amazing glow of the city. I think about the glow of the city is destroying the amazing glow of the universe.
1: Yeah. I think something is lost when you can't see stars at night, because I think it's just such like a simple joy in life is being able to look up at the night sky. And I don't think it's too much to ask because even in our homes, I don't think people like harsh lighting. Like people enjoy warm and soft lighting. So why wouldn't we do the same out and about?
2: When was the last time you looked up at the night sky? What did you see? The Big Dipper, the Little Dipper, Orion's belt, maybe even the blinking lights of the International Space Station just on the horizon. Or if you live in near or within close proximity to one of the major urban cores around the world, you may have seen a dull orange hue illuminating the night sky with only the clock to signify that yes, it was the middle of the night. What is lost if we look to the stars, the very thing that led sailors home or provoked a million thoughts about our place in space, time and beyond, and we can't see them? Is light pollution from the built world at the price of star-filled nights the ultimate buy-in for our modern existence? Or are the issues and reasoning behind our illuminated night skies more delicate than we realize? In 2016, Science Advances noted that 99% of the US and Europe live under light-polluted skies, with 80% of North Americans and 60% of Europeans unable to see the Milky Way. National Geographic recounted in 2019 that after the 1994 Northridge earthquake, the sight of the Milky Way hovering over Los Angeles startled residents who called emergency services about the mysterious cloud hanging over the city. Moreover, the BBC notes that exposure to artificial light at night has been linked to diabetes, certain cancers, and mood disorders. Lastly, in 2021, Ruskin Hartley, the CEO of the International Dark Sky Association, told the BBC Every single creature that has been studied in terms of the relationship between light and those creatures' habits has found detrimental impacts. With our love for electric light, how has that dependency affected the natural world which moves around us and lies within our circadian rhythms? Is there a way to have our light and keep it out of the night sky? Or are we too far gone into the void that changing one of the aspects which makes our built world possible is one ask too much? I'm Miriam So. This is Changing Places. In order to understand how we got here, I'm going to chat with Gregory Francis, director Rights of Light and Daylight Sunlight, Avis and Young, about how the built world is working to improve its relationship with the night sky. Throughout this episode, we'll hear from an expert in the field of dark sky research, Dr. John Barentine, Executive Director and Principal Consultant, Dark Sky Consulting, LLC, and we'll learn more about the state of the night sky and its future. Gregory Francis, welcome to Changing Places. Gregory, if we look at modern cities, buildings, and most downtowns, they're illuminated at night. Places like Times Square come to mind. If we take a step back, how does light pollution affect not just that immediate area, but even towns 50 to 100 miles away?
0: That's a great question. So taking your example of Times Square or a similar area in London, such as Piccadilly Circus, clearly any visitors in those areas know what to expect or actively seeking to experience the bright lights of the city. As such, in terms of the immediate area, I would argue that the amount of lighting is intentionally high and therefore appropriate for that for that context. However, as you suggest, an issue can arise when this then unintentionally affects other areas of a very different character. So if unchecked, Bright illumination from the immediate area can, say, bounce off surfaces such as nearby buildings and the ground with some light then reflected upwards and therefore contributing to what is called sky glow. And this cumulative sky glow can be visible for many miles away from the actual source itself, particularly against a dark backdrop on a clear evening.
2: That's disheartening a little bit to hear, I think, for folks who really care about the night sky. If we look even deeper into areas within places like London that have green spaces like Hampstead Heath, how do we separate the illumination from the city versus the village-like feel of Hampstead?
0: Yes, we've got these areas that are pretty much side by side. If anyone knows Hampstead, it's very much like a green oasis in the middle of a very dense major world city. And keeping those two conflicting characteristics complete and intact is a challenge. How do you deal with Hampstead Heath and how do you deal with the surrounding areas?
2: Greg, I'm curious about containing light pollution. Is there a way for a place like London or any other city to be able to contain light pollution in, into its just its downtown or business district versus it uh, creeping out into more residential areas?
0: Yes, that's not a good question. I mean, again, this comes down to the local management, I think, of the environmental zones and then further ensuring a good lighting design as part of any new development through the policy or even installations. For example, in the UK, we've got the Clean Neighbourhoods and Environment Act of 2005, which officially made prejudicial artificial lighting a potential statutory nuisance enforceable through the courts. And just as as a general principle, good lighting design doesn't seek to eliminate artificial lighting, but seeks to aim to manage it effectively, whether it's in new designs, or in existing installations.
2: I guess what I'm wondering is people's homes, businesses, they have their lights on sometimes throughout the evening. Is there anything that would be able to contain that, whether it's, as you mentioned, councils, but also is there any sort of technology that could contain the light
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I say, good luminaire normally has built-in features to ensure that it only lights the area that's intended, the direction of the luminaire itself, ensuring that it only lights downwards and not upwards and outwards. There's things called cowls or baffling that you can add to lights. And things such as timer switches on lights and, yeah, just, I mean, as I say, good lighting design should, in theory, mean that the light's only where it's needed and not spilling out to where it's unwanted and undesirable. Should we go back to using candles? Candles have got their place. I like a candle lit dinner as much as anyone else. But yeah, I mean, they have their own issues. And for example, fires and public spaces can't be lit by candles, that sort of thing. So candles are always going to have their place. I think they're great. They have a soft glow, but it's lovely. I think artificial lighting is relatively young. I think we can tend to forget that. It's not that old a technology. It's come on leaps and bounds. And I think as we as we go forward, we're going to learn more about lighting. It's becoming more energy efficient. We've got dimmer switches, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think candles still got their place. But um, the artificial light uh, was here to stay not in its current form, but in an evolved format, I think.
2: Speaking about lighting for homes, what is the optimal night lighting for a home that everyday people can implement today?
0: Most issues with regards to domestic lighting tend to occur with outdoor installations. So if you've got lighting in your backyard or security lighting, which is an important aspect of of external lighting, It's just making sure that they point downwards as much as possible, that you adjust it, look at it. Is it lighting the area you intended it to light? If not, it should be adjustable either either in terms of intensity or perhaps the angle at which it faces to make sure it only really lights the area that you want it to. Things like the surfaces that it reflects off or have a role to play. But it's really just being a general common sense and consideration really about making sure that the light is only as strong as it needs to be and only lights the area that it needs to. I think that that's a good, simple approach that pretty much everybody can apply, I hope.
2: Greg, I'm curious what you think about how London is taking a proactive stance towards its relationship with light pollution after we hear from Dr. John Barentine.
1: It's just after midnight and I'm speaking to you from the backyard of my home At the edge of Tucson, Arizona, when I look up towards the east, I faintly see the Milky Way arcing high overhead. To the west is what we call a light dome. A semicircular glow in the night sky, the sky is much darker, where the Santa Catalina and Rincon Mountains halted the city's growth in those directions. On a clear night in the fall when I look to the northeast, I can just make out the Andromeda Galaxy, whose visibility is an indicator of the quality of my sky. Compared to most other cities its size, Tucson is much more conscientious about the impact of its lights on the night sky. Tucson has sought to keep conditions in the area favorable for astronomy and space science, and it has one of the best outdoor lighting ordinances among mid-sized cities in all the United States. By carefully dealing with outdoor lighting, it has managed to decrease light pollution a little, even as the city's population continues to grow at just under 1% per year.
2: Greg, if we take a step back, do you think London's prepared to rein in light pollution from new entertainment venues, airports, office buildings, etc. to curb this issue? Or is that some kind of progress that would be too great to make a difference now?
0: London and other world cities, they've always been progressive, exciting and dynamic. That's not going to change, I don't think. What I do think is that all these world cities, particularly London, tries to be responsible alongside being progressive, exciting and dynamic. And the, the approach in London that I've seen as part of my work here is to really try to find the sensible middle ground where the potential negative effects of light pollution are identified and effectively managed, while still also allowing the city to evolve and maintain its edge. You mentioned London, but I just should say that we have lots of large cities in the UK, such as Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, Bristol, and all of those same principles apply very much so to them as well.
2: Greg, for folks who aren't in the industry, what is a light pollution assessment and what are some of the attributes you're trying to understand when you undertake this assessment?
0: We're fortunate in the UK to have a whole range of best practice guidance notes for lighting design underpinned by a rigorous town planning system and wider legislation. So, these best practice guidance notes help us to identify when poor lighting design spills beyond the boundary of the area being lit, which is something in the industry we call obtrusive light, which is also interchangeably referred to as light pollution. In a nutshell, the two main potentially problematic types of obtrusive light are light intrusion, which is the uncontrolled spillage of artificial light to nearby dwellings and premises, and secondly, sky glow which is the brightening of the night sky. There there are lots of other different types of obtrusive light, but those are the two main ones that have arguably the biggest effect and need to be managed most effectively. So for light intrusion, uh, simply the assessment's aim is to first appropriately categorise the environmental zone and context. So that's going back to what we were saying about making sure we categorise the zone itself. And then that's the first stage. And then secondly, considering whether the lighting installations effect would be appropriate or within acceptable limits for that particular environmental zone context. If the installation is a proposed one, so it just exists on paper or computer screen, we'd undertake that by computer modelling and assessment simulation. Or if the installation is actually existing and is a cause for concern, then of course we can use direct measurement using light meters for those to measure how much light is being projected onto, onto windows nearby. For sky glow, the aim is to assess what's called the upward light ratio. And that's just a fancy term for the percentage of light from an installation which goes directly into the sky and therefore cumulatively contributing to the sky glow. Again, this is usually modelled by computer analysis for proposed installations and direct measurement for existing ones. And those are the standard basic methods, but there are a variety of other approaches that we can take if a more bespoke or tailored assessment is required in addition to those to make sure it's adequately considered.
2: Stay tuned for the next part. And just a reminder, Changing Places is a podcast brought to you by Avis and Young that continues to explore and question our complex relationship with the built world around us. I'm your host, Miriam Sobh. I hope you're liking the show so far. If so, please share Changing Places with your friends. Welcome back to Changing Places. Before we get back to my conversation with Gregory Francis, let's go back to London's Hampstead Heath, to hear what folks think about light pollution in their hamlet.
0: I think I do think about light pollution because lying out in a field like Hampstead Heath and looking up at the stars, there's so, something so magical about it and
1: it's just taken because of all the light pollution that's affecting your view. Why not? There's so many skyscrapers, huge buildings that keep their lights on at night
2: that don't really have to. But at the same time, it's kind of part of London, which personally I like the view at night of the city. I think there's so many office buildings so many huge, yeah, huge buildings that just don't need to have their lights on. I personally would like to see the stars more, but it's also kind of a treat going into the countryside and appreciating them
1: more. It's a sad sign that, like, by choosing to live here, we just know that we won't see the stars. Because it's something that I love. Like, I, I love being in nature.
0: Uh, I, I guess this light pollution is a byproduct of modernity. It's innovation and urbanisation is just always going to lead to such a thing. So I think it does have to be taken into consideration when living in such an urbanized city.
2: Now, back to my conversation with Gregory Francis, Director Rights of Light and Daylight Sunlight from Avis & Young. Greg, I know you've dealt with the new project, Madison Square Garden Sphere, which is slated to open in London in 2023. It's said that the sphere will require 36 million LED lights, which may be unlike anything ever seen (laughs) before in Europe. That's a lot of lighting. How is London (laughs) handling the potential sky glow or light pollution from this project, along with the already existing light pollution in the city?
0: Yeah, yes. It's not like we don't have an issue already. Yes, part of my work at Averson Young, I've had the privilege to be involved with this project This will be a 21,500 capacity venue in London with the joint largest and highest resolution programmable LED screen in the world, measuring two hectares or five acres of surface area, which is absolutely enormous. And I say joint because it's a direct twin of the MSG sphere at the Venetian in Las Vegas. In answer to your question, Mariam, London handled this via a very long and detailed consultation and planning process. The applicants Madison Square Garden had to undertake a very detailed environmental impact assessment, which considered all the potential environmental effects of the proposal, including, of course, light intrusion and sky glow.
2: When it comes to this project, the sphere. It's in the flight path of London City Airport. Yeah. Is that going to cause any issues, you know, surrounding light pollution at night? And how can it remain unobtrusive to the air traffic controllers?
0: Yeah, another not great question. In the UK, we have a rigorous set of procedures under the banner of aviation safeguarding. And also, as part of the planning process, I think the airports are statutory, what we call statutory consultees. So they have to be consulted where it's deemed that uh, there could be an issue that's Less obvious, let's say, to people who don't work in aviation to enable the, the aviation authorities who are specialists in this field to pose whatever questions they need to, to make sure that all concerns are adequately addressed and informed. I know that the sphere development is bound by limits on its maximum output capacity. For example, you just said it's got so many LEDs, it's got 36 million LED lights. You imagine if that's switched up to maximum fully white, it's going to be a, a real, I've had it described as a beast, a real beast of, a, of an installation. So there's been necessarily needs to be limits on its maximum output capacity. And there's been lots and lots of detailed assessments with regards to its ability to interfere with the pilot's visibility taking assessments at certain altitudes and the flight path angles into London and modelling all of those to take those into account and then any mitigation was applied as necessary for example as I say the the maximum output and there's effectively strict limits on that and those have been produced in conjunction with the aviation authorities and the operators of London City Airport. And also probably Heathrow and Gatwick as well, which are slightly outside the city, but probably also consulted just in case.
2: One thing that we touched upon earlier in the conversation was about Earth Day and and how we shut off our lights for a day or an hour in the evening. I can't remember exactly what the rules are for that. But do you think we need more Earth hours, maybe an Earth week Mm. where these big metropolitan cities around the world turn off their lights for a whole week instead of just a night.
0: Humans, we're, we're, we're odd, aren't we? You know, I think the Earth hour is intentional. But for example, I know, I don't know if it's happened this year, but a few years ago, there was a major power outage in New York, I believe. And I think some people in those situations would have appreciated the sudden abundance of night sky visibility in the absence of night glow. But then the, on the other end of the scale, I imagine there's others who are hardcore urban dwellers that can't wait to get back to feeling like they're in a city. I think generally, again, similar to the zoning principle, most people know what to expect from living in an urban centre. I, you know, I think it's expected that there will be a certain level of background noise and buzz about the urban centre. It's really more the responsibility of designers and planners to ensure that good lighting design avoids unintended potential negative effects, but based on the fair expectations of a given area. I think Earth Hour, personally, is a great respectful gesture or time to collectively stop and reflect. Earth Week, wow, that's a big one. Yeah, who knows? It could be societal change. It could could really reframe our relationship with, with the night sky. Who knows? Who knows? There'd probably be unintended or unpredictable consequences or side effects of that, I imagine, if it were ever to happen.
2: When you were mentioning some of the places where they had blackouts, there's, there are countries where they have regular blackouts where they turn off the electricity, you know, for certain hours yeah. in the day and at night. And people seem to adjust. So I just wonder sometimes if we're just really uh, spoiled and, and privileged.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's something, especially, yeah, in the UK and the US, it, we just expect constant access to electricity, Wi-Fi, that sort of thing, and to have a consistent supply of those luxuries. But yes, we take it for granted. We are spoiled in some ways. And maybe Earth Hour reminds us of that. Going without something for a period of time, certainly in my case anyway, makes me appreciate it all the more when it returns.
2: Absolutely. And I wonder with regards to educating the public, is there more education needed to catch up with science for folks to understand the benefits to their health and their sleep when you have a dark night sky?
0: There's actually already an ever-growing body of research into these links between health and quality of sleep, including the significant contribution of light to organisms, and I say that purposely, it's not just humans here, natural sleep-wake cycles, which is also, to use a scientific term, circadian rhythms. The circadian rhythm is proven to have a significant effect on important areas of medical concern, such as mental health, diabetes, and obesity. And if, uh, in a simple sort of non-medical way of explaining it, it's essentially the body's, body's clock, the body clock, knowing when it's time to sleep, to switch off, to regenerate. If the body's getting thrown out by the wrong type of lighting at the wrong time of day, it's not going to know when it has time to reboot itself properly. And policy, design guys, legislation are all starting to take this on board in varying degrees. And a really good example of that, for example, we have seen the kind of widespread introduction of what I call time-responsive color shifting on mobile phone screens late in the evening because of this research about certain colors triggering negative responses in the circadian rhythms. And these color shiftings on the phones try to lower the potential negative impact to our circadian rhythms. But (laughs) the aim is to reduce and get you Get your body ready for a good night's sleep.
2: Greg, if we look ahead to the next decade or two, what does the future hold in store for light pollution in the night sky? We'll dig into that after we hear from Dr. John Barentine.
1: When it modernized its street lighting in the middle of the last decade, Tucson decreased its overall nighttime light emissions by up to 20 percent. Despite the changes here, we don't find any evidence that there was a negative impact on public safety or crime during overnight hours. Tucson is an example of how cities can grow and thrive while lowering energy consumption and costs to taxpayers, but without harming the night sky in the process. But as I am quick to point out, Tucson is very unusual in that regard. Most cities don't share its concern about the integrity of the night sky, and the past decade has seen cities all over the world growing brighter at an alarming rate. Averaged over all the countries of the world light pollution appears to be growing at about double the rate of population growth.
2: Greg, if we look ahead to the next decade or two, how do you see the built world evolving to become less of a burden on the night sky through light pollution?
0: In short, I think it's through the process of scientific research, finding its way into our build and design guides, policies and legislation. That's effectively how we're going to evolve the academics, Progress their research, make it intelligible to us in the real estate community. And pressure gets put on the policies, uh, design guidance, and legislation around these matters to make sure that we're adequately, effectively responding to these findings.
2: Well, I want to thank you so much, Greg. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. No,
0: likewise.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
2: Let's hear from John Barentine before we go back to London's Hampstead Heath.
1: The world didn't set out to have bad lighting and light pollution. We got there slowly without knowing what was happening and we could change the situation in just the same way. But in order to do that, we have to choose a different outcome. I sense great cause for hope. More people than ever are becoming aware of light pollution, not only in how it causes harm to our world, but how easy the problem is to solve. When they make the choice to reduce light pollution, they'll see immediate results. It's the only environmental pollutant that leaves the scene at the speed of light as soon as the pollution stops. In a world where we face big and serious problems that may take generations to fix, this one is a no-brainer in comparison. And I am hopeful that solving this problem is a choice that many people will be willing to make.
0: In a, in a At a precipice point between modernization and the natural world, and I feel like we 've started the ball rolling and have destroyed the natural world, and 'll continue to destroy it. So I think losing the stars is probably the first step in a long chain of destruction that is beginning.
2: The planet is what 's like four point
0: five billion years old. And we are, we've created this problem. If it's something that's important, and it is, light pollution affects ecosystems. It affects a lot more than just looking up at the night sky. That's such a benign reason to want to change light pollution. We should be making more of an effort for the other creatures that live on this planet as well that are affected by what we put out there. I think detachment from nature is a uh, part of the affliction of the modern age. Detachment from nature is, a, is um, one of the reasons we're all so depressed and anxious. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know if, if, um, if, we can ever det- if we can ever really get away from that. But.
2: As far away as the cosmos may seem, they do play an active role in our daily lives. Our addiction to artificial light may be the greatest and most misunderstood thing to ever happen to humankind. Yes, being able to read all night, watch that new series as soon as it drops, and navigate our way down an unfamiliar street are benefits. But at what cost? When it comes to lighting, nothing is free. Carbon emissions are a product of having electricity. The disruption to our natural sleep patterns is also at stake. Meantime, wildlife, which has evolved for billions of years now, must alter their migratory patterns and natural rhythms to hew to the demands of our built world. The answer isn't as simple as turning off the light going into caves and remembering the good old days. For every Times Square, should there be a certified dark sky site where people can go to marvel at the brilliance of our entire natural world? Maybe I sound like a romantic, but marveling at the Milky Way or pondering what lies beyond that distant star could inspire the next generation of poets, thinkers, philosophers, and artists. And yet, if they can't see it, does it exist beyond a mere abstraction or an image online? Maybe it's time we turned off the lights for a bit and let our eyes adjust to the wonder of darkness. Who knows? We may see things clearly for the very first time. I'm Miriam So. This is Changing Places. Changing Places is brought to you by Avison Young. Our producer is Andrew Pemberton Fowler. Our sound engineer is Patrick Emile. Our producer assistant is Hugh Perkich. Additional production support is provided by JAR Audio.